the resurgence of India was not simply political. It was also a moral, a social, and as we know in the hands of Gandhiji, a spiritual renaissance. In order to trace the roots of this renaissance, we must go back to the 19th century, when India came into contact with Europe. The British connection had a profound effect on our social order. I say the British connection and not the British government. The British government was conservative. Even governments which called themselves liberal were conservative so far as the colonies were concerned. In fact, according to the standards of this century, the century of the common man, they might even be called reactionary. But they were certainly conservative, especially conservative in the social field. For this, there was a reason. They had the example of Portugal before them, the pioneer in empire building. Portugal interfered, meddled with the customs and manners and religion of the people. They regarded the people simply as heathen to be converted by fire and sword to the ways of God. That is why the Portuguese empire in India was so short-lived, though of course Goa continued to exist for 300 years by the grace of the British government and for 15 years by the grace of the government of India. <laughs> so Great Britain did not want to follow the example of Portugal. They did not want to interfere with the customs, even the evil customs of the people. This policy of non-interference or minimum interference with the life of the people, this was in accordance with the political philosophy of the 19th century. The whole conception of government in the 19th century was different from our present conception. It has been described as anarchy plus a policeman. Aristotle said that the state comes into existence in order to secure life. It continues to exist in order to secure good life. But nobody thought in the 19th century that good life could be secured by act of parliament. It was the heyday of capitalism. The general idea was that the only thing that the state could do was to hold the ring and to let the competitive principle have free play. It was also, but so, so far as India was concerned, the British attitude was simple. Things like caste and untouchability 
had gone on for centuries and would go on forever. It was no use striking your head against a blank wall. It was impossible to undermine them by any action on the part of the government. And of course, from the point of view of the diehards, the existence of these abuses provided an excellent pretext for the continuance of British rule. But before long, the British found themselves on the horns of a dilemma. They did not want to undermine the social order, to undermine the customs of the people. But these customs were being undermined all the same. From the point of view of self-interest, the British committed a fatal mistake. They introduced English education. Catherine the Great of Russia was much wiser. She knew the dangers of education. She introduced a whole network of schools in Russia, but no students went to them. The director of education went to Catherine the Great and said, Your Majesty, we have established this network of schools, but there are no students, no students are attending them. Catherine the Great told him, told him, what do you think we have established these schools for? We have established them in order to impress public opinion in Europe. Otherwise, they would say that the Russians were a barbarous people. But if you, my dear director, if, if students start attending schools, you, my dear director, and I, we will no longer be in our places. Well, in Stalin's time, students did start attending the schools. And that is why Stalin is no longer in the mausoleum in Moscow. <laughs> and that is why the Weissrigel Lodge in New Delhi has become Rashtrapati Bhavan. Well, it was also at this time that Hinduism came into contact with Christianity. Christian missionaries, looking merely at the surface of Hinduism, scoffed at Hinduism as sheer idolatry, scoffed at the numerous gods and goddesses of all shapes and colors in Hinduism. They also pointed their finger of scorn at the many inhumane and even inhuman abuses which Hinduism was harboring. To this, Hinduism reacted with vigor, but also with humility. It searched its own conscience, and there began a reformation of Hinduism a reformation which is as potent, though not as violent, a reformation which was as potent, though not as violent, as the reformation in Europe in the 16th century. The pioneer of this reformation was 
Raja Ram Mohan Roy. With your permission, I would like to dwell on his personality and achievements for just a few minutes because it shows how differently India and China acted to Western influences. It shows how greedily Indians, or at least some Indians, absorbed Western influence while China resisted them. China in its sublime superiority that the Chinese civilization was the only civilization worth having resisted Western influences. The result is that today India is a link between the East and the West, while China is living in a world of its own, looking down on the rest of the world, looking down even on many parts of the communist world to which she belongs. Raja Ramohan Roy lived in exciting times. A year after he was born, the American colonies declared themselves independent. He was barely 20 when the French Revolution broke out. He was so excited with the victories of the French revolutionaries that he says he could think and talk of nothing else. But the French Revolution, of course, had effects beyond France. In Naples, there was a constitutional government. And then Ramohan Roy gave a dinner in the town hall in Calcutta to which he invited his Indian as well as European friends. In Spain, again, there was a constitutional government. And Ramohan Roy said that friends of despotism and enemies of liberty will never prevail. But he was an optimist. He did not suspect that 150 years later, Spain would be living under the Franco government. Ramohan Roy visited London in 1831. England created a great impression on him. And he apparently created a great impression on England. We are told, one of the newspapers said, that the women of London, not even pausing to complete their toilet, went out to embrace him. No wonder, because he was so handsome. The Court Journal of London in 1832 described him as cast in nature's finest mold, with a towering forehead, dark and animated eyes, a nose of Roman proportions, and the mobile mouth of an orator. But he was not satisfied by impressing the women of London. <laughs> he impressed some of the most eminent men too. Lord Brougham, that distinguished Englishman who was responsible for the abolition of slavery throughout the British Empire, was a personal friend of his. So was Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy Bentham described him 
as my dearly beloved and intensely admired collaborator in the service of mankind. He said, Ram Mohan Roy threw himself into the agitation for the first reform bill. He said that if the reform bill was passed, he would not live in any part of the dominions of the King of England. Truly, it was said, his sympathies embraced all mankind. But his primary sympathies were, of course, with his own people. In India, at that time, the question of questions was whether the medium of instruction should be in English or in the Indian languages. And in this tussle between the Anglicists and the Orientalists, Ram Mohan Roy ranged himself definitely on the side of the Anglicists. Our madrasas, madrasas and patshalas were languishing. Our universities, which once upon a time drew students from all parts of Asia, they were languishing. No wonder Ram Mohan Roy turned to the West for light. He came very much under the influence of Christian missionaries, and at first he was inclined to think that Hinduism was nothing but idolatry. Disgusted with the state of Hinduism and Islam in India, he undertook a perilous trip to Tibet. But there he found that the condition of Buddhism was even worse than that of Hinduism in India. He wrote about it, and some Buddhist monks laid hands on him and would have killed him but for the kindness of some Tibetan women who saved him. He never forgot their kindness. He was a knight errant of women all his life. He denounced sati, the, the, the horrible habit of widow burning, as contrary to shastras and every article of common sense. And he thus helped Lord William Bentinck to effect the suppression of sati. He was greatly interested in Christianity. He regarded Christ as the most perfect man who's ever been born on earth. But he did not accept the divinity of Christ. He wrote a book called The Precepts of Christ, A Guide to Peace and Happiness. This roused the wrath of not merely Hindus, but Christians. One Subramanya Shastri of, Bengal, of Madras and one Bhattacharya of Bengal organized a social boycott against him. Christian missionaries, too, denounced him. One Dr. Taylor, head of the medical school in Calcutta, wrote a letter to the papers calling Ramohan Roy a wretched fool and signing himself your determined and inveterate enemy in the Lord. <laughs> Another Christian missionary, Dr. Marshman, head of the 
Baptist church in Calcutta said that a Hindu had no business to talk about Christianity because Hinduism owes its existence to the father of lies alone. <laughs> but such things left him unmoved. Gradually, he began to realize that there was a great affinity between all religions. What difference, after all, is there between a Hindu yogi, a Christian mystic, or a Muslim Sufi? They were all God-intoxicated men, crying like St. Augustine in his cell, my God, my God, who am I, and what art thou? And when he dug deeper into Hinduism, he realized that Hinduism, with all its later accretions, with all its idolatrous extravagances, it had kept steadily in view these two things, thou and I, God and the soul. And so Ramohan Roy, who had incurred his father's displeasure by repudiating the religion of his ancestors, he came back and stood before the mansion of Hinduism, a prodigal son, not knowing which to admire more, its height or its breadth. For if in height Hinduism scraped the skies, touched, as Tagore said, the hem of the garment of God, and as in the philosophy of Shankaracharya, went even beyond God, in breadth it gave succor to all the religions of the world. Such was Ramohan Roy, the founder of the Brahma Samaj. But that was by no means the only reformation movement in the 19th century. There were others, the Arya Samaj, other reformers like Dayanand Saraswati and Swami Vivekananda. But the greatest of them all was, of course, Mahatma Gandhi. If Ramohan Roy was the fountain of the reformation in India, Gandhiji could be compared to a river into which all the tributaries of previous centuries flowed, a river which flowed majestically, carrying the nation with it into the haven of independence. I shall not take your time by dwelling on the teachings of Gandhiji. We all have some idea of it. We know what stress he always laid on the paramountcy of truth. There was all the difference, he said, between putting truth in the first place and in the first place but one. We know the emphasis which he laid on nonviolence. We know how, when the nationalist movement sometimes seemed to be within the crest of victory, he pulled it back simply because some people calling themselves his disciples strayed from the path of nonviolence. 
Above all, we know how he related ends to means, how he always said that a good end would not justify bad means. It has often been said that the three in great influences on Gandhiji were the Gita, the New Testament, and Tolstoy. When I was in Moscow, I realized how great was the similarity between Gandhiji and Tolstoy. One place to which we were never tired of going from Moscow was Yasnaya Poliana, about 200 kilometers from Moscow, where Tolstoy lived and worked. Once when I was there, I saw in the library a letter written by Mahatma Gandhi to Tolstoy, in which he addressed Tolstoy as the Russian Titan and signed himself a humble follower of yours. There was a good deal in common between both. Tolstoy also laid emphasis on the need for truth. He also believed implicitly in non-violence. To him also, God was not a personal being, not an anthropomorphic being, but truth, love, spirit, the essence of all things. Even in minor matters, they resembled each other. Both were strict vegetarians, though Countess Tolstoy always added a little meat juice into his soup, <laughs> which Kasturba Ben never did. Again, both were, both insisted on the need for sexual abstinence. In fact, Tolstoy went even beyond Gandhiji, and he defined marriage, except for the purpose of having children as domesticated prostitution. But there was one difference. While Gandhiji took the vow of sexual abstinence and kept it, Tolstoy found it exceedingly difficult to do so. <laughs> in fact, in 1898, a diary of Countess Tolstoy reads as follows. Last night, Leo was, as usual, wildly passionate. And Leo was then 69, <laughs> which merely shows that he was a full-blooded Russian. Well, but between them, there was a great resemblance on all the more important matters. Gandhiji was right in calling him a Russian titan. Maxim Gorky, the writer of the revolution, who had no use for Tolstoy's philosophy, has described him in exactly the same words. He said, I saw Tolstoy, and I realized what a vast amount of life was in him, how wise he was, 
how terrifying he was. And I, writes Gorky, and I, who do not believe in God, stood before him and said, this man is godlike. But Gorky had no use for his philosophy. He described his belief in nonviolence as the negation of all affirmation. And that is the attitude in Russia towards nonviolence today. The British too, they were inclined to make the same mistake. We know how Lord Chelmsford, in whose time non-cooperation was launched in India, how he described, he said, that non-cooperation would die of its intrinsic inanity. But before long, the British discovered that non-violent, non-cooperation was not something inane, not something negative, that it was something positive, explosive. It exploded the myth of an everlasting empire on which the sun never set. Now, Tolstoy had no such influence in Russia. He had no such influence on the politics or philosophy of Russia. Again, to quote Gorky, alien to all, says Gorky, he was a solitary traveler through all the deserts of thought in search of an all-embracing truth which he never found. How inapplicable this description is to Gandhiji. He was not alien to all. He was the beloved leader of the whole nation. He was not a solitary traveler. Hundreds and thousands traveled with him to imprisonment and even to death, but ultimately to freedom. He too traveled through all the deserts of thought, but eventually he did discover, or at least had an inkling of an all-embracing truth which guided all his actions. How is it, you may ask, how is it that while Gandhiji has had a profound influence on every branch of our national life, Tolstoy has had no such influence in Russia. Of course, Tolstoy is revered as a writer in Russia. And the other day, the 50th anniversary of his death was observed with the utmost solemnity. But as a philosopher, as a politician, he is regarded as something juvenile. He has had no, no real effect on the thought of Russia. No practical effect on the development of Russian politics or philosophy. He was, in fact, excommunicated by the church. And that shows the difference between Hinduism and Christianity. But by Christianity, I do not mean the religion of Christ. I mean that socio-politico-religious system which has been described as the ghost of the Holy Roman Empire sitting crowned on the grave thereof.
Hinduism never became a system like that. In fact, Hinduism is not a system at all. A man can believe or disbelieve in any dogmas he likes and yet be a Hindu. Hinduism, unlike the Orthodox Church in Russia or Confucianism in China, it never became a tool of autocracy. That is why, unlike Tolstoy, who was turned out by the church, unlike Tolstoy, Gandhiji could remain within the fold of Hinduism, purge it of its evils, cleanse it, and work for its redemption. That is how, in India, there has been, together with a political resurgence, something like a spiritual rebirth. There has been no such development in China. China, on the contrary, may be said to have moved away from its moorings. China has subverted whatever spiritual foundations she may have had. Is that one reason for its present conduct? By her conduct, we of course think immediately of her aggression on our frontier. But even her previous conduct was despicable. Even in the days when India and China were friends, even in the days of Hindi Chini Bhai Bhai, China did not play fair by India. Our Prime Minister put all his cards on the table. He proclaimed from the housetops, from Parliament and elsewhere, that the McMahon line was our frontier. We drew the attention of the Chinese government to the, to the gross errors in their maps. We told them that chunks of Indian territory had been included in their maps. To this, they gave the soothing reply that these maps were old, they dated from the time of Chiang Kai-shek, that the government of China was now too busy to attend to these minor cartographical errors, that India and China were such good friends and we could put them right any time. And at the same time, they were putting a road through our territory. In the 19th century, British businessmen and others, with their facility, with their capacity for facile generalizations, used to say that the word of a Chinese, unlike the word of a Japanese, could always be trusted. They used to say that in business dealings, you always had to have a contract with the Japanese, but the word of a Chinese was his bond. But now, the word of the Chinese has turned, to be, turned out to be not his bond, but a means of putting our territory under bondage. What is the explanation for it? Is it not because while we built our freedom on firm foundations, China undermined those foundations altogether. <laughs>